Hi, welcome to Broadway Assembly Church Podcast. We are excited for you to be joining us today. If you want to get a notification of the most recent uploads, please subscribe to our podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy. Yeah, yeah, the old bladder alarm clock. They said the Native Americans used that one up into the 20th century. That's how they uh, got up. Uh, In the past, how many know church bells? was actually used as alarm clocks for the community. Um, factory whistles were used as alarm clocks for workers in the community. And I bring all this up, as Paul says, as believers, we are tasked with being spiritually awake. And in the text, he says, awake to something. You remember the word he uses? Awake to righteousness. And now, upon investigation, I just began to look at this, and I found that this phrase, awake to righteousness, literally means become serious. Get serious about spiritual matters. How many has ever had, uh, how many parents do we got in the house? Raise your hands, you're a parent. Grandparent, yeah. How many has ever had to tell your kids, I'm being serious. You ever had to use that phrase? One, two. You guys must have a bunch of serious kids. To awake to something here in this context means, come on, be serious about it. How many found out our generation has a hard time being serious about anything? Our generation, everything is like a joke. Right? How many's found that out? But evidently, Paul had the same problem in the church of Corinth. He has to tell them, hey, we got to get serious here about righteousness. You got to get serious about putting God's word into practice in every area of your life. Now, he's not telling them that they have to look serious all the time and confuse seriousness with some kind of heaviness or somber, gloomy outward appearance. I mean, no, that's not what he's talking about. I mean, no, you can be serious right in the middle of being joyful. I can be serious right in the middle of of the most joyous celebration. I mean, no, some folks, they look like when they got saved and baptized, they were baptized in pickle juice, lemon juice, whatever. That's not what we're talking about here. Being serious in this text means to live with eternity in view. To live with eternity on your mind. Striving to be more like Christ. That's the seriousness that's implied here. Now, I couldn't help but think of instances throughout Scripture, and I'll share a couple, where folks did take things serious or did not take things serious. Like, For example, my mind went to the five wise bridesmaids that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 25. They took things serious enough to take some extra oil for their lamps. How many remember that story? But alongside of them were five foolish bridesmaids who unfortunately did not take things serious enough, and so their lamps went out 
and they were not permitted to join in the wedding celebration. I thought of Noah. How many remember the story of Noah? Wow. Built the ark by faith. For him, building the ark was a life or death issue. It was literally going to be a lifeboat for he and his family. And I'm glad Noah took that task seriously. He built it according to God's precise instructions so that it would be seaworthy, so it would actually float. They had no experience up until that time that we know of. Seriousness paid off for Noah, didn't it? And his family. Now, in both of these texts that we read here, uh, Apostle Peter and Paul call on us to mind the details of, of, of righteousness with a healthy dose of seriousness. And it reminds me of my dad who used to say when I was growing up and I became a very happy-go-lucky teenager there for a while, he'd, he'd be talking to me and he'd say, Now, son, let's get serious. Let's get serious. He was telling me that there's matters of life that require a good dose of effort in seeing that they're done properly, right? And 1 Peter 4, 7 says, The end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober, a.k.a. serious, and watch unto pray. And so because, they're, because we're living in the last days, how many believe these are the last days? I really do. I want us to examine three areas that Peter and Paul would call us to be serious in, all right, in these last days. Three points, three observations, and then we'll be done. Observation number one, we're called in Scripture to take our personal sin seriously. Now, maybe you heard about the lady who came in to visit a psychiatrist. She walks in his office. She had two fried eggs on top of her head and a strip of bacon tied over each ear. And she came in and she said, Doc, I've come to talk to you about my brother. He has a problem. Some of you will get that later. But how many know we live in a world where everybody has a problem, not just the ones who look like it? Hmm? Uh, and the first step in solving that problem is to admit this fact that we all, we all can be just as guilty as the next guy. And the trouble with our culture, let me, let me, let me tell you this. It's not abortion. It's not the erosion of the family. It's not LGBT community. It's not gay marriage. It's not the opo opioid crisis. It's not racism. It's not the lack of gun control that leads to all all the shootings of schools and public places, as I say. It's not even terrorism. Do you know that? No. All those things are just the fruit of the problem. Think of them as symptoms of a terminal disease that we all should call sin. And how many know the symptoms vary? widely with different people, but 
The disease and its results are universal. And now sin is a word that how many know it does not communicate well in our society today? Right? Because the concept of morality has become so blurred. And people don't have a clear understanding of what's right and what's wrong anymore. And this inability to discern can make it hard to wake people up to the fact that they need something called God's forgiveness. And it's becoming harder and harder for people in our generation to know what is right, what is wrong these days. They don't know it because, how many know we have something called a sin nature? And it blinds us to our sins. And this sin nature is why we can't clean up our act on our own. This is why we can't handle our own lusts. This is why we have so much trouble saying no to certain temptations. That's good preaching, Pastor. This is why we fight with each other and fight with God all the time knowing that we shouldn't. This is why we can't seem to keep our promises. This is why our children begin to disobey and question our authority very early in life. This is why we look, uh, you know... uh, and have to lock our house before we go to bed every night. This is why you had to lock your house before you come to church this morning. This is why bankers check our credit before they give us a loan. See, this universal sin nature is why Romans 5.8 says, Christ died for us. And Christ's death on the cross provided the bridge across the gulf that sin had uh, put between sinful people and a holy God. Anybody remember, I was thinking this week, the mu- musical group, recording artist, uh, Point of Grace. Anybody remember the Point of Grace group? A few of you do. Uh, one of their hit songs, if you recall, was called The Great Divide. And, and somewhere along the way, they made a typo in the lyrics, and one of the lines goes like this, there is a bridge to cross the Great Divide. And it was supposed to be repeated. Okay, but the person who typed the lyrics made a typo, and on the repeat, it was worded, there's a cross to bridge the great divide. And Point of Grace decided to record the song that way, feeling it may have just been a divinely inspired typo, because Christ did, how many know his cross did bridge the great divide between sinful man and a holy God? Only Christ could do that, right? Only he could die in our place because the Bible teaches that unlike us, he knew no sin, he had no sin, he did no sin. This made him qualified to be the Lamb of God who could die the death that we deserve. He, and we could not earn the cure for sin. It's beyond our ability to pay. And this week I was reading that statistically, looking across our country, Stanford University ranks as one of the toughest, the very toughest schools to get into. Sometime back, Stanford updated their admission standards and stated that only 5% of applying students are actually accepted. 5%. In a few years back, 2017, nearly 43,000 students applied, but only 2,100 were accepted. That's pretty, pretty intense. And if you look on their website, here's how they explain it. To be accepted in Stanford University, 
you got to meet certain standards. For example, a perfect ACT test score is 36. If you have a score of 33 or higher, it'll put you into the top 50% of applicants. But the average score for accepted students at Stanford University is 35. You will also need an average SAT score of 1520 out of 1600. You will need a, an average GPA of 418 out of 4.0. On top of this, you must have a robust resume of extracurricular activities, leadership qualities, references, and recommendations. Of course, new students also have to pay for Stanford at $60,000 per year. Now, in conclusion, if you want to get into Stanford, you better be amazing. You basically better be perfect, right? Well, how many know getting into heaven on our own is not just difficult, it's impossible. No one is good enough, but that's okay because God accepts people not on the basis of their works, but on the basis of his mercy and his grace. Somebody ought to raise your hands and praise him. And Paul equated our efforts as righteousness. He says, all of our efforts at righteousness, he, he really equates it with a, with a pile of, I'll just say it, stink from a cow pasture that you try to avoid. Right? That's what he said. It's time we wake up to the realization God's love is not activated by our perfection. It's activated by our need. And it's ridiculous for us to think we're going to pay for pay our way into heaven. Recently, I read that one of the most expensive cars made in our world today, if not the most expensive car, is the Rolls-Royce Sweptail. Here's a picture of it. Anybody want to guess the price tag? Come on, over here. Give me a price. 250000 Anybody else want to make a guess? A million. Three million. Five million. Well, we got some good guesses. But the price tag of that car right there is 13 million. Newsflash, I won't be buying one. Now, Brother Patrick, raise your hand, Brother Patrick. Now, imagine you are taking a walk down the street by your home and this car pulls up to the curb where you're walking. And a man in the back seat jumps out and says, Hey, young man, I appreciate you. And I appreciate you so much, I'm going to give you this car. Oh, he's smiling. And he hands you the keys, uh, the title, while the chauffeur gets out and holds the door open for you. You're astonished, obviously. You, you're so grateful. And what Patrick does next is he puts his hand into his pocket and he begins to fish around for a coin. Huh? And he finally finds an old beat-up penny. And Patrick holds it out proudly before the owner of that car and says, Well, I appreciate this car so much. I'd like to give you this penny and a token of my appreciation. 
Can you imagine how that fellow would feel? Hello. How many know the same thing happens when we presume to somehow earn our way to heaven? Hmm? With our attempts at goodness. Listen, none of us are good enough, pure enough. None of us can earn our way to God. That's why the gospel is the best news you can ever hear. Hallelujah. You see, the only person who paid for our penalty is who? Christ. That's why Hebrews 9.15 says, Christ died as a ransom to set us free from our sins. I recall reading in history about Queen Victoria, which would be Queen Elizabeth's great-great-grandmother, I believe. Queen Victoria attended many years ago a service in St. Paul's Cathedral one day. She listened to a sermon that she said interested her. And afterwards, in her conversation with her own personal chaplain, she asked him, she said, and I quote, can one be absolutely sure in this life of eternal salvation and safety? And the answer from her chaplain was that He knew no way that one could be sure of eternal life. Well, that incident was actually published in the court news and came to the notice of a minister by the name of John Townsend. After reading of Queen Victoria's question and the answer she received, he prayed and he felt led to send a note to the queen. And this is what he wrote. I quote, To Her Gracious Majesty, our beloved Queen Victoria, from one of her most humble subjects, with trembling hands but heart-filled love, and because I know that we can be absolutely sure now for our eternal life in the home that Jesus wants to prepare or went to prepare, may I ask Your Gracious Majesty to read the following passages of Scripture. John 3.16, I may remember what it says, and Romans 10.9-10, I sign myself your servant for Christ's sake, John Townsend. John Townsend sent that note to the queen and began to pray for her. He said two weeks later, he received this following note back from the queen. It says to John Townsend, I have carefully and prayerfully read the portions of Scripture referred to. I believe in the finished work of Christ for me and trust by God's grace I meet you in that home of which he said I go to prepare a place for you signed by the Queen. Praise God. Townsend was right. You can be sure. Hello. John 3.16, you can have everlasting life. Oh, hallelujah. In Revelation 3.20, Christ compares our lives to a house and says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone heareth my voice and openeth the door, I will come in and sup, which means to, to fellowship and to eat with him. Listen, how many know the Lord knocks at the door of our heart? I'm glad I let him in. Anybody else in here glad you let him in? 
Oh, some of you, 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 the way you look, it looks like he's still on the outside. How many know if Jesus is with you, you ought to be rejoicing for forgiveness. You ought to be thanking him that... Hey, how many know he's not going to gate crash or force his way in? He's going to only enter at your invitation. And so we must respond to that knocking by opening the door and embracing the invitation. I, I read the story of this stately organ that was built many years ago in, in uh, Freiburg, Germany. The assembling of that great instrument was long and painstaking process involving a lot of expense, a lot of care. And it, was, it, it became world famous and uh, it was acknowledged to be a, the choice instrument of that entire time. And this was many years ago. And they said, in comparison, no organ on earth anywhere could equal the sound and the clarity of this one in Freiburg, uh, Germany. And it was housed there in a local chapel. And, and they said it was actually guarded uh, by the custodian of the chapel. And one day they said a, a stranger uh, came into the chapel and asked the custodian if he could by any chance play that regal Freiburg organ. And the uh, custodian said, oh, no. He said, uh, that's out of the question. He said, only the most accomplished musicians are allowed to even touch this, uh, this piece of history. It's, it's so valuable. It's such a valuable instrument. And, but the stranger persisted, and he asked again, saying that he had come a great distance. He traveled a great, uh, great distance to see this, this famed organ, and, and he'd just be so grateful if he could just, just play it for a few moments. And, and in time, touched by the stranger's sincerity, the custodian reluctantly said, he said, all right, he said, but only for a few moments. He said, don't you tell anyone that I allowed you to play it. I'll lose my position. And so he handed the key. That, those, those old organs had keys. And, and he handed the key to the stranger who went and approached the organ, unlocked it, and sat down on the bench and with careful, delicate touch began to play. And the story goes, the stranger's hands moved with such skill and ease uh, and, uh, up and down the ivory black and, and, and uh, ivory or manuals there producing the greatest music that the custodian said he had ever heard. And he was totally just entranced, and, and he said all of his life he had been around that organ for years, and he guarded it, but he had never heard anyone play it with such stunning skill. And when the stranger had finished, he was returning the organ key to the custodian, and the custodian said, well, excuse me, sir, but he said, I, I didn't get your name. What did you say your name was? And the stranger just looked at him and said, my name is Mendelssohn, Felix, Felix Mendelssohn. And, he, and as Mendelssohn was walking out the chapel, this custodian stands there and he says, I got tears in my eyes. And he said, I begin to think to myself, the master was here and I almost didn't give him the key. Church, how often does the master of heaven come into this service and services that we have here at Broadway? And how many times do we come and go and we fail to give him the key to the heart, huh? to the heart of our soul? 
He comes wanting produce, to produce in us a beautiful melody. But to him, and for him to do that, somebody's going to have to give him the key. And the key is to turn ourselves over to him, trusting him to be the master of our lives. What a tragedy for any one of us to withhold the key from the one who died for us. Oh, I got to quit. I got to quit. It's already noon. And that's just my first point. Can you guys control the crock pot or the oven with Alexa? Can you tell them to turn it down? I need a couple more minutes. All right, I'm going to put it in gear. Are you ready to listen fast? I thought I'd get an overwhelming response on that. Observation number two. We're not only called to take our personal sin seriously, we're called to take our national sin seriously. Church, America needs an awakening. I hope you join me in prayer. America needs an awakening. 18, uh, excuse me, 1982, President Ronald Reagan said this, and I quote, we can't have it both ways. He said, we can't expect God to protect us in a crisis and just leave him over there on the shelf in our day-to-day living. He says, I wonder if sometimes he isn't waiting for us to wake up. That's not a preacher. That's Ronald Reagan. How many know our country was founded on Judeo-Christian values and we have strayed so far away from the original version that our founding fathers produced here in America? Once what was freedom of religion is freedom from religion. And we have succeeded in getting God out of our schools and out of the sporting events and out of public spaces and workplaces. And of course, there's the breakdown in the family. And so many of our social ills today can really be traced back to the broken homes and fatherless households. And it's been said a family can survive without a nation, but a nation cannot survive without a family. And our nation needs to turn back to God. George Washington warned warned us, He said, we can never expect the smiles of heaven on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order which heaven itself has ordained. Peter Marshall, former chaplain of the U.S. Senate, said once, he said this, he said, the choice is before us. It's Christ or chaos. It looks like we chose the latter. It's conviction or compromise, he said. It's discipline or disintegration. And listen, Ronald Reagan, once again, he said, America needs God more than God needs America. And if he said we ever forget that we are the one nation under God, then we will be one nation gone under. How many know God still has a cure for any sick country? It's all the way back in 2 Chronicles 7.14 when he says, if my people, which are called by my name, can you quote that? Will humble themselves. Pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Oh, look at that. I will hear and I will heal their land. Listen, God says if you if you want your land healed, it doesn't start at the White House. It starts at the church house. I mean, no, God does not point his finger at the White House. 
but at his house. And I know it's easy for us as believers to put the blame on Hollywood or Washington, D.C., but God says that we need to be living as followers of Christ and turning from our ways and turning to his. All right, that's, that's the second point. Here's my final point. I told you I was going to go fast. Here's observation number three. We're called to take our worship seriously. We're called to take our worship seriously. Sis Jones, you can come to the piano. I'm going I'm to close. As, as believers, how many know no experience on earth should delight the soul more than corporate worship? It, it's the high point of our week. It establishes a rhythm to our lives. And as believers, we live, we really live life from Lord's Day to Lord's Day. Or we should. And we dare not neglect the assembling of ourselves together as the habit of some is. You know, that's mentioned in Hebrews 10, 35, or 25, I think it is. And, and why is it? Let me ask you as we get ready to close. Why, why does worship occupy such an important place in our lives? Why do we take time to be here this morning? And I know we often speak of worship in terms of, of giving and, and receiving. We receive mercy, grace, kindness, peace, love, truth. All those things you can receive in corporate worship, right? That's all true. And how many know that's still not the essence of worship? Yeah, we come and we receive, but also we come and we give. We give God adoration. We give Him praise. We give Him confession, love, service. And that's good. And how many know that's still not the essence of worship? Hello? Corporate worship, rather than primarily consisting of receiving or giving, is more about being. Being. Above all else, worship is an encounter with the living God who is holy, who is sovereign, who is the triune God of the universe. And He chooses, as you stand together, He chooses to meet with us by His Word, through His Holy Spirit. And there is nothing, nothing, everybody say nothing, there is nothing as meaningful, nothing as rich, nothing as glorious on this earth as the church gathered together with its Lord and Savior in true worship. In that moment, we are enjoying a foretaste. Come on, church. We are enjoying a foretaste of heaven to come. The greatest longing of our soul, the very purpose of our creation. Listen, therefore, as we approach corporate worship, we must seek to do so with purpose. We do not take it casually every time we come and meet God. If there's one thing consistently observable in the Scripture is the reality that meeting with a holy God is really anything but casual. 
when men and women come into God's presence, they know it and they reference it. Moses saw it and he took off his shoes in Exodus 3. Isaiah shook and trembled in Isaiah chapter 6 and Job silenced his lips and he says he sat down in silence in Job 40. The apostle John in Revelation 1 fell as if he were dead in the very presence of God. Listen church, casual worship is not what we're about at Broadway Assembly. Let's take our worship seriously. Part of our weekly activity. I know it's it it just becomes routine. It just becomes, you know, if we're not careful, something that mom and dad does, so now I have to do it. But listen, don't just go through the motion. Hello, Broadway. Are you hearing me? Are you still awake? Don't just go through the emotions. Don't just sing the songs mindlessly. Let's not just come to get our worship card punched. Hello. Oh, listen. May we come and realize this is a place where we connect uh, with the creator of all the universe. uh, And we are standing on holy ground. And if your life needs transformation, it can take place uh, uh, nowhere else. uh, But right here in the house of God, in his presence. And it can become a life-changing experience. Raise your heads and praise Him. Oh, I feel the Holy Ghost. I feel the Holy Ghost. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. God, here this morning, let our lives awake to righteousness. Lord, if there is one soul in the house that has not treated you with a level of seriousness that is acceptable if they have not given their heart to you if they have not opened that door when you knocked God I pray they'll do so before they leave I feel you're pulling for somebody here this morning and I don't know I don't know the condition of their heart But you do. In Jesus' name, may we respond. And may we respond with seriousness. In Jesus' name, all God's people say amen. Amen. Sister Jones, what are you singing? Jesus be the Lord of all. I'll sing it. Jesus be the Lord of all. Jesus be the Lord of all. The kingdom Why don't you make Him your Lord this morning? Over every kingdom of your life, these altars are open. God bless you as you come.